this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today just as the omicron wave of the pandemic was ebbing in india and case numbers were dropping significantly there were some concerns about an omicron subvariant ba2 earlier this week The World Health Organization said that it was closely monitoring BA2, which is believed to be more transmissible than the usual BA1 strain, but the WHO said there was no cause for alarm as this subvariant does not seem to cause more severe disease. As of Tuesday, India reported just over 15,000 new cases and the number of active cases has fallen below the 2 lakh mark, indicating the receding of the third wave of COVID-19 and the gradual return to normalcy in the country. booster or third doses of the covid-19 vaccines which have been on many minds since the third wave began have so far only been given to healthcare and frontline workers and vulnerable adults over the age of 60 the niti ayog recently said that a decision on a third dose for all adults would only be taken based on scientific need so is there a scientific need for booster doses in india what happens to those patients who experience long covid those who develop long term symptoms after being infected and crucially what next can we expect of the pandemic and will covid-19 become endemic in the country with the virus sticking around but not affecting large numbers to speak to us about all of this and more we have with us today dr lancelot pinto consultant respirologist and epidemiologist pd hinduja national hospital and medical research center mumbai good evening dr lancelot and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast good evening zubeda and thank you for inviting me Doctor, just yesterday the World Health Organization said that it was closely monitoring the BA2 subvariant of Omicron, which was found to be more transmissible than the BA1 strain. But it also said there was no cause for alarm as the new substrain does not cause more severe disease. There has been a lot of concern about the new subvariant of late. Could you give us a little explanation about it? the ba2 subvariant of omicron was uh, i think the designation was given to this particular subvariant somewhere in early december and it uh, basically is a sub lineage of omicron where ba1 was the original strain now some people have called it the stealth omicron because it does not show up on pcr tests as an s gene failure or an s gene dropout so i think a lot of us recognized during this omicron surge that when rt pcrs were done with the s gene The Omicron variant often showed up as an S gene dropout, but that doesn't happen for this particular lineage, which is the BA two sub subunit or the sub variant, uh, which is why it has been called stealth, something that cannot be detected on routine RT PCR tests and needs whole genome sequencing. Now, whenever we look at a particular variant or a sub variant, I think it's useful to look at it in terms of various parameters. So, when you talk about transmissibility. what has been described based on certain modeling studies is that the ba2 variant is about 30% more transmissible than the ba1 variant however i mean if you look at the past variants that have been around so when delta made its appearance delta was about 3 to 4 times more transmissible than alpha and omicron was supposed to be somewhere between 3 to 5 times more transmissible than delta so if you look at that kind of a magnitude of transmissibility this is just about 30% more transmissible than the existing omicron variant the next question after transmissibility is is it more severe does it cause more severe disease and this is where the red flag was raised by a study from japan which actually used hamsters 
And these hamsters had no immunity to SARS-CoV-2 and it caused more severe disease in hamsters when compared to BA1. However, this data has not been replicated in humans. So we now know that in the United Kingdom, in South Africa, in Denmark, the BA2 variant has significantly proliferated and it doesn't seem to have resulted in a huge surge in hospitalizations or a huge surge in severe disease. So this red flag related to severity seems to be limited to the animal models, also possibly because these animals had zero immunity to the the variant, while as humans now, a significant proportion would have some immunity either from past infection or from vaccination. The third question you you ask when you're talking about variants is, does it cause immune escape? So will it escape the immunity conferred uh, upon individuals by vaccination or by past infection? And the answer to that seems to be it's the same as Omicron. So we know that Omicron caused immune escape as well. So even individuals after having a booster of the vaccine were not necessarily protected from infection. They were still protected from severe disease, but they still got infected. And and that seems to be similar for for BA2. Now, there have been some documented cases of individuals who got infected with BA1 in the current Omicron surge getting reinfected with BA2. So that would be a big cause for concern if it were common. But again, you know, in the past, so we've had Omicron for close to two months or a little over two months now, and it doesn't seem to be, a lot of individuals do not seem to be getting reinfected, which again suggests that the immunity or the immune boost offered by BA1 seems to be protecting you from BA2. So it doesn't, it will not lead to another surge in that sense is what most individuals believe. The last question as a clinician, one would ask is, does it have any treatment implications? Does does the BA2 change the way I treat patients? And unfortunately, a monoclonal antibody, which was which seemed to be effective against Omicron, which is uh, sotrovimab. So we know the existing monoclonal antibodies, which were effective against Delta, a lot of them are not effective against Omicron. But this particular one was sotrovimab, but it doesn't seem to be effective against BA2. So it does have some treatment implications to a certain ex- extent. So I think net-net, if you look at it, it is it seems to be more transmissible, but does not seem to cause more severe disease and does not seem to cause reinfections in individuals who've been recently infected with Omicron. And if you look at the overall picture, the worldwide circulation of all variants seems to be declining. And I think these were the, the considerations that the WHO took when the technical advisory group on virus evolution met yesterday and said that this should be called a variant of concern, but as being part of the same family as Omicron. We do not need to designate it separately as a as a new variant of concern or give it a new Greek alphabet as, as, as a separately new virus as such. Doctor, you were talking to us about uh, immunity and how a lot of us have developed it either due to infection or do, due to vaccines. While many countries around the world have allowed all adults to take a booster dose uh, of the COVID-19 vaccines, India is only still allowing the precautionary third dose for healthcare workers and vulnerable adults over the age of 60. The Niti Aayog has recently said that a decision for all adults to be given the third dose will be made on scientific need and at present that there, there is no such plan. How are we placed in India in terms of protection from the disease, both in terms of having had the disease and also having vaccinated a large proportion of our country? Do we need booster doses? So I think, Zubeda, the, the question that one needs to ask is, you know, what, do, what does one expect from a vaccine? What is a vaccine designed to do? And if you look at the answer to that question, for most diseases, vaccines are essentially designed to prevent moderate to severe disease, to prevent individuals from getting hospitalized, to prevent individuals from from dying of a particular disease. 
And I think the existing vaccines with just two doses seems seem to be doing a great job. So if you look at the current Omicron surge in India, for example, the booster doses or the precautionary doses which were introduced in India were introduced from the 10th of January by when Omicron was well underway. And it's very unlikely that the precautionary doses protected individuals from Omicron. Despite that, so most individuals had received their first two doses about, you know, anywhere between nine to 10 months prior. Despite that, we did not see a huge rise in the number of hospitalizations this time round. We did not see a huge surge in the number of deaths, suggesting that the primary vaccination schedule seems to be reasonably effective for most individuals. Now, we do know that individuals who are at a high risk, so individuals above the age of 60, individuals with comorbidities, with immunocompromising conditions, as their immunity wanes with time, they could potentially be exposed to moderate to severe disease by virtue of or or compounded by their immune status, which is not particularly great. So these groups definitely would benefit from, from boosters. And I think there is evidence from Israel, there is evidence from the United States as well, which suggests that individuals who are high risk and are boosted do tend to have lower rates of hospitalization and deaths. Now, should we extrapolate that same data to everybody in the population? I'm I'm not sure that necessarily is the case. So individuals who are young, who are at low risk of, of deterioration to begin with. So even with the first wave and the second wave, where a lot of individuals were not vaccinated, we found that by and large individuals with who were young did not suffer from moderate to severe disease. By and large individuals were not hospitalized or, or, or did not experience poor outcomes. Now, these, this cohort of individuals now has received two doses of vaccine, which protect them from that those rare events already. Now, whether giving them an extra booster or an extra dose will protect them further, I think, I think that's debatable. Uh, let's also not forget that a significant proportion of the country did get infected as well. So this causes what we call hybrid immunity, the combination of a natural infection along with two doses of a vaccine, which uh, possibly acts better than, than any booster around. So I think I think it's not unscientific to say that high-risk individuals should be boosted and the rest of the population might not necessarily need a third booster dose. However, I think we should define, I think there should be a clear definition of high-risk groups. So individuals who have comorbidities, individuals who have immunosuppressive conditions, who are obese, you know, these are known to be risk factors and maybe offer it to these individuals gradually with time. The other thing that we also will need to take into consideration is the fact that a lot of international travel mandates a vaccine which is not older than nine months or, you know, I think there are differing definitions. And how are we going to circumvent that if we want people to travel? How are we going to uh, allow them to travel without having a booster? Or how are we going to, uh, you know, ensure that they are not prevented from travel is something that we would need to look at. I think it's important also to look at the fact that seroprevalence studies even before Omicron showed antibodies ranging anywhere between 85 to 90 percent or 90 plus percent in the population, given the fact that a significant proportion of the population now had Omicron infection as well. I would guess that the antibody prevalence in the population is reasonably high. So, you know, it may not be unscientific to wait for some time before considering rolling out universal boosters to everybody. Talking about antibody prevalence and the zero surveys that we've had, how how much do we know about how long how long immune how how long we have that immunity in our bodies? How long are we protected against disease? Again, this is an interesting question because traditionally we've always looked at just antibody levels, and experts do tell you that there is something called the cell-mediated immunity, which is not just a function of the quantum of antibodies that you have; that there may be other mechanisms by which you are protected. 
I think if you look at past influenza pandemics, in the individuals who seem to have had influenza in their childhood seem to have some degree of protection way into their adulthood or later on during the next surge. So there are some parts of the immune system that we don't completely understand. We, we do know for a fact that the quantum of antibodies decays with time. So you, if you check your antibody levels two weeks after you received a vaccine or get or got infected, and then you check it every two or three months, it's definitely going to keep going lower with time. However, the belief is that when you're exposed to the virus again, there are mechanisms through cell-mediated immunity where the memory of that past infection or vaccination will lead to a surge in an immune response and protect you from, at least protect you from moderate to severe disease. So, so while you may get infected over time, there is a belief that these infections will by and large be mild, will by and large not lead you to getting admitted to a hospital or having worse outcomes. And I think that's, that's what we've seen during the Omicron surge as well. So to answer your question, I think, you know, the quantum of antibodies will definitely decay with time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a person will have zero immunity when exposed again. Doctor, we spoke just now about how lakhs of people in India have gotten infected with coronavirus now. What do we know and what can you tell us about long COVID? Some studies have estimated that maybe 10 to 30% of people infected with coronavirus develop long-term symptoms and research indicates that it appears to disrupt your immune system. So the prevalence would vary based on how proximal you check it. So you, you check it immediately after an, after an infection, say you check it four weeks later, the prevalence is bound to be higher than when you check it six months later and when you check it a year later. So there is a small fraction of individuals who unfortunately have symptoms for a very long period. Fortunately, that that's still there is a feeling that this is still a, a small fraction. This is not a huge number. But for those individuals who do suffer from, from long COVID, it can be pretty debilitating. So we, we wrote a paper recently, which was published in Lung India, and we titled it, And the Fire Rages On, which is uh, the unfortunate reality. Now, two things we know. We know that the, the severity of the initial infection does not necessarily correlate with how long your symptoms will last. So you might have a relatively mild infection, but you might have symptoms of long COVID that last a long time. The manifestations... Uh, affect different organs across the body. So you could have the classical neurological brain fog that, that one hears very often, where individuals feel like they can't think clearly anymore. They feel that simple computational tasks are challenging. There is fatigue that individuals describe for a really long time, the, the lack of motivation that comes along with that severe physical fatigue. Things like anosmia or the loss of smell, for example, which uh, some people have had for a long time. There is this, this autonomic nervous system in the body, which regulates things like temperature, your heart rate, which is known to vary post-COVID. So individuals suddenly feel lightheaded, feel dizzy. Their blood pressure suddenly fluctuates. They sweat suddenly. They feel very cold suddenly. So those temperature fluctuations, that's part of, of long COVID as well. Some individuals have had uh, strokes, have had heart attacks post-COVID. And there is a suggestion that the increased uh, coagulability or the increased thickness of the blood in some ways could the clotting of the blood could in some ways contribute the respiratory system of course is is the primary portal of entry of the virus you know whether it's the upper respiratory or the lower respiratory system so some individuals do describe feeling short of breath for a long time their exercise capacity goes down they're also realizing that the gut is affected in a lot of individuals so bowels seem to be dysregulated in some ways with the you know some individuals describing bloating describing constipation diarrhea 
menstrual abnormalities, mood swings, all of these have been described in the spectrum of long COVID. And it's not like one individual will have all of them. There are different manifestations in different individuals. Now, why this happens is a matter of, of a lot of research. There are different theories which have been postulated. One is that there are some viral fragments which remain in the body and therefore stimulate the immune system constantly to try and fight off these viral fragments. And as part of that, the immune system is in hyperdrive. There is a theory that an autoimmune response could play a role, that there's uh, the body, uh, the immune system of the body attacking itself in some ways. And there are parallels which have been drawn from other diseases like fibromyalgia, uh, for example, which have been postulated to be triggered off by viral infections as well. In, in India, we know that a, a viral infection like dengue, for example, can lead people being fatigued for a really long time. Something like chikungunya can cause body aches and pains for a really long time. So viruses are known to cause uh, a prolonged syndrome after the initial viral infection is over. And there are certain other hypotheses which, which have been postulated, such as the dysregulation of the microbiome in the gut. So the gut has healthy bacteria which get dysregulated and that could be contributing as well. So we don't really know what exactly causes it in terms of what can be done. One of the things that seems to help is, is vaccination. So individuals who have not been vaccinated, this is another reason to get vaccinated to prevent oneself from getting long COVID. And say you've received the first dose of your vaccine, you've had COVID, you're experiencing long COVID, you should definitely go and get your second dose because that might help to a certain extent. Moving on, doctor, we spoke a little earlier about how since a lot of people have been infected with the disease, you talked you talk to us a little bit about antibody, DK, etc. Do we know what would be an endemic level of COVID-19 in the country? when it is likely to remain in circulation without ca causing large outbreaks, such as some other viruses are? I mean, the optimist in me would like to believe that we are already there. And the recent Omicron surge bears testimony to that to a certain extent, that despite a significant proportion of individuals getting infected, despite it causing a vaccine, or despite it causing vaccine breakthroughs in a lot of in individuals, so a significant proportion of individuals who were infected this time around had received their vaccines. Yet it ended up not overburdening the healthcare system or no, not overwhelming the healthcare system. Unfortunately, I, I can say this from our experience that individuals who didn't do so well this time around were individuals very often who had comorbidities, who were quite frail, who were quite ill. And I, and I think that's true for any virus. So we do know that influenza kills a lot of individuals every year and, and those individuals tend to be immunocompromised elderly individuals. And, and I think COVID is kind of behaving in that way. So if you do have comorbidities, which are not well controlled, if you are sick for other reasons, if you have chronic illnesses, COVID might be the tipping point. It might be the viral infection that unfortunately tips the whole balance against you in that sense. But in itself, you know, if you look at the quantum of oxygen that was used this time around, for example, it, is, it was minuscule compared to what it was used during the Delta surge suggesting that it wasn't COVID itself which led people into the hospital very often, but it was their comorbidities, it was their other chronic illnesses which probably were tipped over by COVID. So to, to talk about endemicity again, I think endemicity is where uh, a point where individuals will continue getting infected, but those infections will not tend to affect individuals, at least healthy individuals to a great extent it won't be too different from a common cold it won't, won't be different too different from seasonal coughs and colds that individuals have and I, and I think we're somewhere close to there which 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 again gives us a lot of hope in terms of the end of this pandemic so to speak and then one last question that's on everybody's mind 
Dr. Dathar Wave is ebbing and has almost ebbed in India. The country has reported just over 15,000 new cases today, and the number of active cases has fallen below the 2 lakh mark. So, as you were saying, the end seems to be in sight. So, what next can we expect? Do our zero surveys show that we have enough immunity, even if uh, another wave were to hit? I think the last zero surveys which were done even before Omicron hit us had shown close to 90% uh, zero prevalence among adults, which is a very high number to begin with. I think you know, the worldwide data suggests that 80 to 90% of all Omicron infections were asymptomatic. So even data from the US, I just recently read a paper where they looked at people who actually got admitted very often were admitted to the hospital for other reasons and and were incidentally detected to have, uh, to have COVID. I, I think... You know, the fact that a significant proportion now has either been infected in the past, whether it was Delta, whether it was Alpha or now Omicron, plus the fact that a significant proportion has received the vaccine uh, should give us robust immunity for the next time we are faced with a variant. Now, the question is, you know, everybody wonders if there is going to be a variant in the future, which will be both transmissible as well as cause increasingly severe disease. Now, fortunately, that's not happened, uh, but... You know, I mean, the hope is it stays that way. Most experts believe that no matter what variants we are faced with in the future, the immunity that we have, this this zero prevalence that we speak about, the past infections and vaccines will offer us some degree of, of immunity. Now, the other positive points for the future is that in the future, we are very likely going to see uh, adapted vaccines. So vaccines which will be continuously updated based on strains that are that are existing around. We know that antiviral drugs such as Paxlovid, for example, have a very high rate of efficacy when used among high-risk individuals, and they seem to be agnostic to the type of variant. So hopefully, no matter what the variant, these antivirals will be in our armamentarium for the future. But I think, I think this is a great opportunity for India as a country to start thinking about ventilation, for example, something that has been often ignored. What can we do best for ventilation, which has an important role to play for a disease like tuberculosis, which is also endemic in India? I think it's important for us to start normalizing masks when people are ill. I don't think mandatory masks is the future, but normalizing it. So if I have a cold, if I have body ache, if I have any sign that suggests I may have a viral infection, I wear a mask and go to work and nobody looks at me differently. People, in fact, may, maybe look at me as a responsible citizen, someone who's protecting others. So I think I think we need to focus a lot around education, around masks. Do not send your children to school when they are ill. Normalize normalize the fact that people when they are ill need to be very conscious of not spreading their germs to others. I think this is a golden opportunity. And then, you know, if, if we use this opportunity to kind of work on things like ventilation and voluntary masking, I think uh, it would be great for a country as a whole, not just for future variants, but also for influenza, also for other viruses, also for tuberculosis. And, and I hope we go that way. Thank you so much, doctor. That was very informative. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for having me, Isabel. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.